You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So I think the best way to start the sermon today is to, to back up for a minute and recall where we started six months ago in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if, you, if you were here then, you might remember in that first sermon six months ago, we saw right away that Mark's gospel is different from the other gospels because of what Mark says in chapter 1, verse 1. He says there, the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's, there's no genealogy here. There's, there's no birth narrative. There's no warm-up at all. Mark just gets straight to the gospel. And what makes it so special here is that it's true, starting the gospel this way is true to the nature of the gospel. This is the way that Jesus is in himself. Jesus is confrontational. Jesus is confrontational in the sense that he came to this world on a mission because he wanted to. Jesus came here on purpose. He came here for us to give himself for us. And Jesus is right here. That's, that's something that we see in Mark's gospel. In Mark's gospel, it's like Jesus is standing right in front of us. We talked about in that first sermon that in Mark's gospel, it's like Jesus in your face. Jesus is right here in front of us, and a big theme in Mark's gospel is how we get him. It's a a theme that we call discipleship. It means following Jesus. It means having Jesus, being in fellowship with Jesus. Are we with Jesus or not? Mark is consistently putting that question in front of us, and we saw last week that this is what's happening in Jesus' conversation with the young urban professional. As Pastor David explained it so well, this guy, the rich young ruler in chapter 10, he's asking Jesus what he needs to do in order to gain eternal life. He tells Jesus that he's kept all the commandments since he was a kid, so what else is left for him? What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically says, there's one thing you lack, And I'm standing right in front of you. Go, let go, sell everything that you have, and follow me. And the key in that story, as Pastor David said last week, is the me in that statement. It's Jesus. That story is all about Jesus. And this this is important for today's sermon because in today's passage, verses 32 to 52, this is the last section on discipleship in Mark. Next week, in chapter 11, we are in Jerusalem. But today, for one last Sunday, we are still on the way to Jerusalem, learning from Jesus what it means to follow him. And I believe that he has something to say to us today. I think that Jesus has something to say to us that we really need to hear. So. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Our Father, we, we confess that we need to hear from you, that I need to hear from you. And more than that, Father, we, we ask that you make us want to hear from you. In this moment, for every heart that is tired, 
and apathetic for every heart that is distracted and in a hurry. Father, would you now by your spirit change us and speak to us today? In Jesus' name, amen. So there are two lessons on discipleship that Jesus gives us here in this passage. And I want to go ahead and tell you what they are. These lessons are part of two different conversations. Conversation one is between Jesus and the disciples. And then conversation two right here is between Jesus and Bartimaeus. And in each of these conversations, Jesus gives us a lesson on discipleship. So this is how it's going to go. If you like to write things down, this would be one of the things that you want to write down. Conversation one. And then conversation two. In conversation one, lesson one, is you are great by your love, not by your power. Conversation one, lesson one. Conversation two, lesson two, is you are most desperate for what you most treasure. And both of these conversations, conversations one and two, and lessons one and two, they both happen in the same context, okay? So there, there are two conversations, but they're happening in the same context. And I want to show you what that is here. It's actually a scene that Mark sets up for us in verses 32 to 34. This is what Mark says there in verse 32. He starts, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And I love what Mark does here because he doesn't just mention this, but he actually begins to describe for us a scene, So we need here to get this description. We want to use our imaginations just a little here. Mark says that the the disciples, Jesus is with the disciples, and he's with a small crowd that's tagging along, and they're all on this road. They're all on the way to Jerusalem. And Mark says that Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus is in front of them. So imagine there's a herd of people walking down the road together, and it's a dirt road of course, and as they're walking, Jesus is a little ways off ahead of the crowd, but he's not ahead of the crowd because he's walking faster. He's ahead because they're walking slower. They are staying back from Jesus, keeping their distance from Jesus because they're sort of dumbstruck by him. Mark says the disciples were once again amazed at Jesus and the rest of the crowd that tagged along, Mark says, they were afraid of Jesus. And so they're just kind of keeping their distance, walking behind Jesus, keeping an eye on Jesus until Jesus pulls aside the 12 disciples and he explains to them what is happening. He says, yes, we're going to Jerusalem. We're all going to Jerusalem here, but Jesus is not going to Jerusalem to assume his post as a victorious Messiah king. Instead, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to assume his post as the suffering servant who gives himself for his people. That's in verse 33. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Okay, disciples, I'm glad we had this talk. 
And then Jesus and the disciples and the crowd continued their walk to Jerusalem. So this is the context, okay? This is the context. They're walking to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to die. He said that. And then James and John come up to Jesus with a question. This is verse 35 here. This is conversation one, okay? Jesus with his disciples, conversation one. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Just a little heads up here for the kids who are in the room, all right? Any kids in here? Don't try this at home, okay? This is not a good idea. James and John are trying to get Jesus to say yes to their question before they even ask their question. And I've seen this sort of thing before, all right? I, God has given me a shrewd brood, all right? And, and uh, they've tried this before, and, and I, I get what, what's happening here with James and John. But the problem is that the only reason that they're doing it this way is because they know that their question is a little bit silly. James and John have some trepidation here, which has nothing to do with the kindness of Jesus, but everything to do with their own motives. They know this is silly. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And James and John ask Jesus to make them next in command. When Jesus comes into his glory and takes his throne, these two brothers want to be by his side, one at his left hand and one at his right hand. They want to make sure, James and John want to make sure that they are in all the pictures. And Jesus says to them very gently, you don't know what you're talking about. They don't know what they're asking. Didn't they just hear what Jesus said was going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem? He is not taking his seat on the throne. He is going to be crucified on a cross. And James and John want to be on both sides of him. They don't get it. Can they drink the cup that Jesus will drink? Can they be baptized with his baptism? When Jesus says this in verse 38, he's talking about his suffering here. Jesus is going to drink the cup of affliction in Jerusalem. He is going to be immersed, baptized into the pain of death. Can they take that? They think they can. Jesus says that indeed they will. And most interpreters of this passage think that Jesus is referring here to the suffering that they will experience as his apostles. I think that's right. All Christians, and especially the apostles, have a solidarity with Jesus and his suffering. They will bear the marks of Jesus. They will suffer for the gospel's sake. But this whole glory talk, all this glory stuff that they're asking about, that's out of the question, see. That's the Father's 
business. And Jesus is not talking about that right now. And when the other disciples overhear this conversation between Jesus and James and John, they get angry at James and John. And we don't know exactly why they get angry. Maybe it's because they had the same ambitions but felt like they got beat to the punch. Or maybe it's because they felt cut out by these two brothers. There's, there is kind of like a, an inner ring mafia thing going on here, right? Like James and John are trying to maneuver with the boss. They're trying to, to get on the inside of the inside. So we don't know exactly why they're upset. But either way, these other ten disciples are indignant at James and John. And so Jesus, again, pulls all 12 disciples aside, and he gives them a critical lesson about discipleship. He tells them in conversation one, lesson one, you are great by your love, not by your power. Verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So Jesus is addressing a problem here, but it's not a problem with just James and John. It's a problem with all of the disciples. It's not just a problem with their motives in this isolated event, but this is a problem with their understanding of greatness in general. The problem is that the disciples think the way the world thinks, which is not the way God thinks. Those who are rulers in this world, the rulers of the nations, the Gentile rulers, they take their authority and lord it over those who were under them. The great ones, the great ones according to the world, manifest their greatness by dominance. They subdue. They squelch. They get their way no matter what. That's the world's way of doing things. Those who are great are those who have the most influence that they can throw around. They're the ones closest to the throne, as it were, which is precisely what James and John are trying to do here. Except that in verse 43, Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. And again, this, this is not a check on their motives. This is a complete reconfiguration of their thinking. In the kingdom of God, under the reign of Jesus, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. This is a new grid through which to see everything. This is the new definition of greatness. We don't come to take but to give. We don't make demands. We wash feet. This is what it looks like when we follow Jesus, and that's because this is the way of Jesus. Verse 45 here might be the most important verse in this entire gospel. Jesus says there, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
If you wanted to know the reason why the people of Jesus are called to be servants, it's because Jesus himself is the ultimate servant. Jesus, help us get this. The example of Jesus here grounds everything else that Jesus has said. Now, in terms of power, Jesus, of course, has no comparison, all right? Jesus has all authority. He spoke the universe into existence. He sustains every created thing by the power of his voice. All possessions belong to him and will be given to him. Every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess his worth. Every king's heart will do as he wills and every nation will pay him tribute. Every single human being will one day sit beneath the judgment of Jesus. So when it comes to power, Jesus is God and he has it all. But when it comes to greatness, Jesus says in verse 45, even the Son of Man, even Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to be served but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus teaches us here. What he shows us at the cross is that you are great by your love, not by your power. Do you want to see the glory of God? Do you want to see the majesty of God? Do you want to see the splendor of God in all of his perfections put on the most vivid display? Where do we look? We look to the cross. We look to the cross where Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Where do we see his greatness? We look to where Jesus was the ultimate servant. We look to where Jesus became highly exalted because of his humility. The cross is where Jesus showed himself great because of his love. And so it is with us if we follow him. Several years ago, it was, it's been over a decade or so, I had the chance to go to Eastern Europe uh, to work uh, with this church for a couple weeks in the country of Moldova, and uh, it, was, it was the summer after my first year of college when I knew that I wanted to be a pastor when I grew up one day, right? And, and I was super excited about this trip because um, I was going on this trip with my friend and my mentor. And then his, his pastor who pastored a great church in Raleigh. And I remember, I, I just was so excited. It was, a, it was a privilege for me to just be in the company of these men. And I remember the whole trip. I was just enamored by this whole thing. When we got there, we got to meet with, with, uh, with pastors, evangelical pastors in the country's capital. And one of the pastors was this man named Pastor Nikolai. And uh, I mean, this guy was just a rock star. I remember uh, he had all kinds of influence in the city. And we were working with him and his church to put on this big event. And we had been planning this big evangelistic event all week long. And it went really well. Tons of people came from the neighborhood, 
And after, after the event, and this thing was amazing, after the event, after everyone had left, um, there were a couple kids and some older women who were, who were doing some cleaning up. And I was just standing there by the door looking in. I was with my friend looking into this big room where all of this stuff had just happened, just kind of taking it all in. I was just still kind of amazed by everything. And I said to my friend, I said, wow, Moldova needs more Christians like Pastor Nikolai. And my friend put his hand on my shoulder like Jesus would do, I think. And he said, no, Moldova needs more Christians like them. He pointed over to an older woman who was emptying the trash. There is more than one way to be a servant. There is. But if we're honest, I think, we tend to be most impressed by the same things that impress the world. The greatest people in the kingdom of God are people whose names we will never know. Just recognize that right now. Think about that. The greatest people in the kingdom, you, we, we do not know their names. Like Jesus, as his people, we are called to go and give, to not be served but to serve in the name of Jesus for the sake of love before and unto God who sees when nobody else sees. We do good for others out of our freedom at no cost to the other, but at total cost to ourselves because we have the resources and his name is Jesus. See, it all comes back to Jesus, right? It all comes back to Jesus, and, and this is what Bartimaeus is going to show us here starting in verse 46, all right? We did conversation with lesson one. Now we're in conversation two right here. This is between Jesus and Bartimaeus, conversation two. After the first conversation with the disciples, Jesus and the disciples and those who tagged along, they continued their way to Jerusalem, and they came through Jericho, which is just east of Jerusalem. And as they were coming out of Jericho, there was a blind man sitting by the road, and his name was Bartimaeus. This is, this is a great story. Bartimaeus sitting by the side of the road. And there was enough clamor, apparently, there was enough clamor about Jesus echoing down the road in Jericho that Bartimaeus, who was sitting on the side of the road, he heard that it was Jesus who was passing by. And because he's blind, he can't see Jesus. So he just started crying out in verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And this would have been a little bit indecent, it seems like, here in the text. This might have been even a little embarrassing. We have to imagine that there's this crowd, right? They're, they're enthralled by Jesus. They're amazed by Jesus walking down the road behind Jesus. And all of a sudden, there's this blind man just hollering out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so Mark tells us here that the, the crowd, they tried to hush him up. 
He tried to quiet the guy down. They rebuked Bartimaeus in verse 48, just like the disciples rebuked away the children in verse 13. It's the exact same word, the exact same word. Nobody in the crowd, see, nobody wants Jesus to be bothered by the kids or the blind man. And that's because they don't know who Jesus is. But somebody in this story does. Because when they tried to make Bartimaeus be silent, you see what he did? He cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And these are not throwaway words here. Bartimaeus is calling Jesus the Messiah. This is as real a confession of Jesus' identity as what what Peter gives us in chapter 8. The Messiah, everyone knew this, the Messiah was to come through the lineage of David. And Bartimaeus is here calling Jesus the son of David, and he's asking him for mercy, which means that Bartimaeus is confessing Jesus as the Christ, which means right away that Bartimaeus has faith. And in verse 49, Jesus stopped, and he said, call him. And those around Bartimaeus told him to take heart, get up, because Jesus is calling him, and I wonder, I, I can't help but wonder if the people who told him to get up were some of the same ones who were telling him to be silent. We don't, we don't know. But when Bartimaeus, when he heard that Jesus was calling him, he threw off his cloak, he sprang up, and he came to Jesus, and Jesus asked him, verse 51, What do you want me to do for you? It's the exact same question Jesus asked James and John in verse 36. So here in conversation number two with Bartimaeus, Jesus is asking the same question he asked over here in conversation number one with the disciples, which means that we're supposed to look at these two conversations together. Mark wants us to compare these two conversations. And when we do, we get lesson number two. All right, conversation two, lesson two, you are most desperate for what you most treasure. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. When Jesus asked James and John what they wanted, I don't, no offense to James and John here, okay? If they're listening in, I just, this is in the gospel, you know, no offense to them, okay? But this is how the story goes, all right? When Jesus asked James and John what they wanted, They said they wanted head-turning glory. Jesus asked Bartimaeus, and he said he just wants to see because he's blind. James and John are trying to secure their prestigious seat at the side of Jesus. 
But Bartimaeus, a blind beggar sitting on the side of the road, just doesn't want to be an outcast anymore. James and John desire stardom. Bartimaeus just wants to be whole. And Jesus says in verse 52, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And the word for well there in verse 52 is also the word for saved. So Jesus tells this now well man, this saved man, to go his way. Go your way. But notice what Bartimaeus does. He follows Jesus on the way. This is a clear reference to discipleship. This is what Mark has been showing us the whole time. This is what Jesus has been teaching us. Bartimaeus goes from being on the side of the road and Jesus passing by to being on the road with Jesus. This is a conversion here. Jesus tells Bartimaeus to go his way, which has now become the way of Jesus. And this is how we know that this story is about more than physical blindness. Bartimaeus wants his sight to be healed here. Yes, that's because he's blind. But that's not what he's most desperate for. Bartimaeus is not desperate to see He is desperate for a Savior who is able to make him see. He doesn't say here, I'm blind, I'm blind, make me see. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when they tried to make him stop, he just said it louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus healed his blindness, he followed Jesus on the way. If Bartimaeus most treasured his sight, then when he recovered his sight, he would have been done with Jesus. Jesus would have been for him just the means to get what he really wants, which is his sight. But that's not how the story goes. Instead, Bartimaeus here doesn't just get his sight. He gets Jesus. Bartimaeus gets to follow Jesus. He gets to be with Jesus. He gets to have Jesus. Jesus is the one he most treasures. Jesus is the one he's been most desperate for because we are most desperate for what we most treasure. So what about you? What are you desperate for? What are you desperate for? What is that thing in your life you must have? What is that thing in your life that you cannot live without? you desperate for? Can you imagine your life stripped away of everything you love except for Jesus? 
Can you imagine yourself in that place? Everything is gone except for him. And can you imagine that somehow in that place, in some deep and mysterious way, through the pain of your loss, can you imagine Jesus is enough? Is he enough? Is Jesus enough? Because if you will follow him, he must be. He must be. And look, I know that that very question, right, this, this whole thing here, it might repel you from Jesus. It, it might make you think, like the rich young professional from last week, this is too hard. This is too hard. Or it might make your heart cry like the blind man, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This thing we call discipleship, following Jesus, it means treasuring Jesus above everything else. And that means we need his mercy. When we treasure Jesus, when we're desperate for Jesus, we are desperate for him in his mercy that he has shown us at the cross. Jesus indeed confronts us, okay? Jesus confronts us, but he confronts us in his love, in his grace, in his mercy that he poured out for us when he died for our sins in our place. Jesus right now, this very moment. Jesus right now confronts us as the crucified and risen Savior. And he has mercy for you right now. Jesus right now has mercy for you. And he will be enough for you. That's what the gospel of Mark is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. And it's what this table is about each week as we come to this table. The table here as the, as the band and the, the pastors and, and servers come to prepare the elements. This, this table is a symbol of the mercy of Jesus. The bread is his body broken for us. The cup is his blood shed for us. And in one sense, I want you to feel this. In one sense, we've all been like Bartimaeus, okay? We were all once on the side of the road until Jesus comes by and stops and calls us. And we say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. This table is a symbol of that mercy. And so today, as the bread and as the cup pass by... If you have received the mercy of Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, we invite you to remember his mercy by eating and drinking with us. We're going to serve the bread first. It's gluten-free. You can just retain it. Then I'll come back up, and we will eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.